All right, I'm sitting here with Dr. Matthew Johnson, professor of psychedelics and consciousness at John Hopkins University. Oh, there were the Beatles before and then after they <laughs> they tried psychedelics and that was a that was a bit of a shift. Compassion is not an absence of the truth. It's like a zoomed out vision or a zoomed out version and you add more things into it and that's like that's true too. It's just more truth. This is America. Why why does someone have to go to a, a third world country like we should be taking care of our own with this technology. I never met a single person with any other drug class that said, you know, I used this thing, you know, one time, maybe a few times, and it changed my life for the good. Welcome to the In Search of More podcast. I am your host, Ellie Nash. Join me weekly on my quest for more, more from myself and more from this world. We'll see you on the other side. All right, I'm sitting here with Dr. Matthew Johnson, professor of psychedelics and consciousness at John Hopkins University. Welcome, welcome to the Instructional Podcast. Thanks, Ellie. Podcast. Pleasure to be here. Grateful to have you here. Uh, so, talk to me a little bit how you got into this uh, this work. Well, I uh, there were some emerging threads. I kind of got interested in psychedelics in my late teenage years, early twenties. When uh, in college, um, I was. I was starting to study drugs in general. I was in a very behaviorally and biologically focused psychology program. Um, became very interested in how substances include you know, everything from caffeine to you know nicotine, alcohol to the illicit drugs. You know, affected people's behavior, how it changed the way they they think and and feel and behave. And um, so I delved very deeply into that and as part of that I learned the history of, of and this would have been back in the late 1990s uh, learned the history of psychedelic work how it, there was all this legitimate uh, scientific Within the research US? yeah in the US yeah. and and a lot of it in Europe so Europe and the US were the two right there's one country in Europe I think which didn't shut down research right during that like the period uh, where these were pushed far underground yeah so there were some Work that continued on the other side of the Iron Curtain, so Czechoslovakia, for example, there were, you know, um, uh, folks that went further. And, and so they weren't affected. They, they went further in time in terms of the exploration when things were shut down. Um, I'm curious about that. So there was a lot of good scientific research going on then, meaning because today, you know, we have many conversations here about that are the tremendous benefits certain people have seen from um, from psychedelics for healing, mm -hmm. especially, you know, addiction and otherwise and things that I've spoken about. So this, sci this science was being studied in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, and there was some good science, and then there was some wacky science, and then there was some, like, straight-up, you know, evil science, you know, frankly. I mean, the stuff that the CIA was doing, um, which was uncovered right. through the Freedom of Information Act, I mean, giving, dropping LSD to people that were unaware of it, U.S. citizens that were right. visiting a sex worker, for example, and she was in on it and knew that the feds were looking through a, a one-way mirror, you know, and just observe, you know, just like some diabolical yeah, stuff crazy. and, you know, investigating it as a potential interrogation agent and incapacitating agent. Um, so there was that. And then you know, Tim Leary kind of uh, caused some controversy at Harvard and, you know, nothing evil, but, you know, sort of 
pushing the boundaries of what you should do and researching and having the sessions at his home on a Saturday night type of thing. Um, and kind of delved into a clicky sort of uh, environment that at Harvard very much became who had, you know, you know, done psychedelics in the Leary lab and who had like a and, spiritual arrogance. Yes, yes, yes. And he did a lot of, he was a brilliant man, did a lot of great things, but he kind of, in some way he became the poster child of, of, Hey, look, you can't even trust, you know, le legitimate scientists like this guy at Harvard. You can't even trust them to do right. this safely. But the reality is, I mean, Leary was a wild man before he ever took psychedelics, before he researched psychedelics. I mean, he was kicked out of two universities when he was young. I mean, he was a, he had, a, had that wild right. streak that made him. That's part of what made him so uh, so interesting, and and such a fun guy, frankly, you know, from all appearances. But it also gave him a wild streak. Um, but you know, more boring researchers that are you know real heroes and. You know, they are less remembered by the public by like folks like Humphrey Osmond and Sidney Cohen and Abram Hoffer. There was all these, you know, there was less flamboyant folks that were begging him. It was like, Tim, like tone it down. <laughs> You're going to like make this thing blow up. And yeah, and sure enough, he did. And then it wasn't just because of him. But again, he became the poster. I think it all would have come to a close had it not been for him. I discovered that that history, and there were also, in terms of my interest, there were also just I met people that use I, I right. saw psychedelics around and the effects, including the older generation. I mean, I I uh, was born in '74, so you know I wasn't you know I don't have memories from the peak of the psychedelic '60s, but I was you know not far after that, and um, and, and you know meeting adults that I'd, I met was friends with one individuals um, that had. You know, taken psychedelics and, you know, after Vietnam and felt that it had helped him come to some resolution of traumatic uh, material. Um, right. So I was being exposed. And of course, you know, kids, you know, it's like I saw the psychedelics around the stories about psychedelics and coming of that age where you you learn about, you know, the world, you know, like just even popular music. It's like, oh, yeah, the Beatles, like, they really were kind of like <laughs> they were kind of a thing. They were like really good, and then oh, there were the Beatles before and then after they <laughs> they tried psychedelics, and that was a that was a bit of a shift. And so yeah, it's like yeah, there oh, are a lot of Sergeant these Peppers and even it, Steve Jobs. They say it, he credited the creation of Apple to LSD. Yeah, yeah. and you, yeah. you throw that in. Of course, in the arts, the you know yeah. music like the the stories are endless. But yeah, in in industry and in technology. Um, science. I mean, Carrie Mullis, who invented PCR, which revolutionized biology. I mean, it was like the, we could actually study DNA because we could replicate it because you can't study a single, you know, it's really hard to study a single, you know, molecule. Well, and that's like a technology replicate. that magnifies. Yeah, it just like replicate this thing, this chain reaction that can create, you know, countless copies of, of DNA material, and so that revolutionized medicine, and, and Mullis said that he would not have been able to do that had he not had experiences on psychedelics, just sort of seeing himself in that, the DNA unzippering and kind of riding along the molecule. Um, you, you know, you, you step back and you think, oh, and then also one of the things that stuck out to me was that as you kind of like learning about this, you know, whether it's academically or just in terms of what you're seeing in the world, what you're hearing from friends, 
I never met a single person with any other drug class that said, you know, I used this thing, you know, one time, maybe a few times, and it changed my life for the good. And you just don't come across, even with cannabis, you know, countless positive, you know, stories where it's helped people. But in terms of any, any, uh, any medical, you know, anecdote. No one says, oh, I used it one time 30 years ago and it changed the course and never touched it again. But I can say I'm a better person because of this. And not everyone, you know, most people that try psychedelics have fun and it's neither life change, you know, altering in the positive or negative direction, but it is surprisingly common. It's not uncommon, I could say, to hear these stories about psychedelics, folks said, yeah, I did, you know, they'll say they tried LSD one time in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, and they're telling you this story decades later and saying, I, w- I was like this before, and now I'm like this, and I made this decision in my life because of that. I, All kinds of things, you know, you know, developing their spirituality in one 100%. way, shape, or, or another, deciding to either get away from a certain tradition or... A lot of times, like revisiting and finding uh, value in the roots of, of of their tradition that they had come from. All these stories, you just you don't come across those stories. If there's a story with another type of drug that's permanently altered someone's life, it's almost all from one incident. For the negative, it's always from that. It's you know, you got drunk and you killed someone by accident. And driving, when you started that researching this, when you started researching this, did you go into it with expecting more positive? Um, data to come through when you're researching psychedelics versus some of the other drugs, or you went in kind of looking, hey, I'm researching drugs and I'm researching cocaine and I'm researching LSD and seeing what I find. I I was attracted to these positive, you know, anecdotes, but going in, I certainly wanted to study the good, the bad, and the ugly. Right. I mean, you you know, because I was also aware of, yeah, some people tend to go off the rails, and it's really hard to say whether. Someone who's done a lot of psychedelics and they're kind of out there. They're maybe manic, they're, or, you know, whether they're diagnosable or not, but they're just, you know, you meet some people and you think, wow, they may have done too many psychedelics. And, but you don't really know is, is the person, especially we're talking about really heavy use, someone who's willing to do psychedelics hundreds of times, especially in more of a party kind of, you know, uh, setting, they're not, they, you know, they're probably different from the get-go in terms of that willingness to go down that road. You know, right. is so it have that, to kind of, or is it that the psychedelics made them? Right, you have to meet them earlier in the process to really know what's what's going on. And so it's a chicken and egg question. It's like impossible to tease out. But I, I suspect that in a causal way, you know, and we've got to dig in with the science to really figure this out. But that psychedelics have calls both good and bad, probably depending on who and the way, most importantly, the way that they've been used. And so it is common for, I, I know, like a lot of, um, it's almost like the standard script for psychedelic researchers these days to say they somehow magically ended up doing their first psychedelic study. And they were very skeptical because they're a good, hard scientist, and they had no clue that it would be so meaningful to people. And then they were just astonished by people saying this was one of the most important, you know, experiences of their life. And I just, you know, you have to be under a rock for that. What's you have to be living under a rock for a long time. Yeah, and so that makes a good story. And so take any story you hear like that with a grain of salt because it doesn't mean 
everyone is is really paranoid of being the next Tim Leary, and everyone's, you know, where a lot of people are afraid that they might be, you know, viewed as being a user of these substances, and that's why, you know, and so if you said, oh yeah, I suspected psychedelics, you know, could be a benefit to people, you know, they might be seen through that lens, but I mean, come on, I mean, scientists who are studying something, especially with an interest in therapeutics, they're at least starting from a hunch right? or some threads of evidence of why, you know, why it might be, you know, why it might help people. And you're not biased for, you know, it's, it's about how you do the study. So yeah, I was aware of all these things. And some, as a psychologist, another thread was that I really got into like the psychology of BF Skinner and like basic behavioral psychology, psychology as a natural science. Um, which is still, it's not my only lens, but one of my, pri probably my most primary scientific lens and just looking at the, the contingencies in the environment and how they shape human uh, behavior. And so with that kind of interest, you know, thinking like, wow, these sound like really powerful behavior change agents. And so that was part of my, you know, interest. Understood. And so... Yeah, I had heard those stories. I had, was familiar with the older work on alcoholism from the 60s. That was early, but it it looked like the, it was promising and worthy of follow-up and then, you know, but the carpet was pulled out for political reasons. So I did suspect that, you know, this these psychedelics if they were harnessed could be leveraged towards therapeutic aims. They could help people improve their lives. Was there a cautionary tale now for us? Is, is there something to learn from what happened in the 70s where there was a lot of promising research, just like there is today, uh, but then it became, um, you know, it, it became illegal and even illegal to, to study? Yeah. Is there something we, we should be doing differently now or should learn from that time or was just the, the think, zeitgeist with politics that caused that? No, I think there are lessons still to be drawn in, in other areas, uh, you know, that, you know, areas where, you know, there's a lot, it becomes hyper-political, and regardless of the evidence, you're told, like, this just sends the wrong message and, you know, hot button topics. I think that's, you know, that's a sign of concern where even scientists... Is this scientists political today? I'm sorry? Is it political today, the, the, the conversation? Psychedelics, I mean, other, yeah. there's plenty of political areas more that I'm, I'm thinking of, but psychedelics have... It's certainly political, but in a sense, it's evolved such that it's a very, for example, it's a bipartisan issue. I can't think of, right. frankly, one of the most bipartisan issues in U.S. in the United States. I mean, it's one of the things. I mean, I've been interviewed by all kinds of media, Fox News, Dan Bongino, right. yeah, Anderson Cooper, on the other hand. It's like, I've gotten the same response from you know, every kind of side of the media, it's like, this is fascinating. We're in a mental health crisis. You know, there's all these vets and people with depression right, and PTSD. being helped. Yeah. And it's like, God bless you. Keep up the good work. I mean, that's right. like, and it, I think it wasn't a surprise to me when I've, uh, when it became public that Rick Perry championed this Texas bill to support right. psychedelic uh, research for veterans. I had heard actually through a con conservative, uh, a guy who had, run super PACs who had connections in the Republican party that there was a lot of interest, including by him. I'd heard that years before, um, you know, and a lot of these, you know, folks are really inspired by the, by the, by the vets that they've met folks like Navy SEALs and green berets that have, 
dealt with their trauma and taken their brothers and sisters down to Peru to to partake in ayahuasca, for example, and that have seen their lives transformed and they're you know, kind of pushing for, you know, this is America. Why why does someone have to go to a, a third world country? Like we should be taking care of our own with this technology. So it really is a bipartisan issue. And I think the more that it becomes more that people understand that how this works, like from a superficial understanding, you might say, oh, this kind of makes things just easy. It's an easy escape. When you really understand how it works, how people are really doing their own heavy lifting, how, how brutal it can be to go through these experiences and how you really are taking care of your own garbage. You're cleaning out your own basement. It's like radical self-responsibility <laughs> seems to emerge. I mean, that speaks to people more conservative-leaning folks. So right. there really is, the more you delve into it, there's something for everybody. You know, there's, no matter what kind of those kind of base basic philosophical inclinations that kind of push someone this side or that side on the political spectrum, there's really something for... So what are the cautions we should be be taking? What should we... Well, psychedelics are certainly, they're powerful tools, so they have risks. I mean, and the nature of those are, they're, they're multifactorial. I mean, you could have... I meant in terms of, like, in terms of possibly going back to what happened in the 70s. Yeah, this, like there can be a backlash. Again. Right. In fact, I think it's important to realize that in the early and mid-60s, there was more of a media environment like it is today, where almost every story you see about psychedelics is positive. Right. And that I was, didn't know this, but this is my understanding of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, uh, it was a really positive media landscape, and within a few years, it shifted from, you know, if you're a journalist and everything has to go through the editors and the owners and... A, um, you couldn't get a negative story published on psychedelics. And then in like moving to the later, mid, late 60s and late 60s, and certainly by the early 70s, you couldn't get a positive story published on psychedelics. And the Manson murders were a big kind of inflection point there. Um, he pretty clearly had used LSD to brainwash people to commit these murders and have this evil ideology of a coming race war and to, I mean, I mean, this was decades before OJ Simpson. This was the first true crime in a sort of like the world, you know, viewing this, you know, trial of this horrific, you know, pop culture, you know, murder. Um, and so it was just on the radar screen for everyone and LSD played a central role. So it kind of shifted from, oh, yeah, not only these drugs that might make your your teenagers wear flowers in their head and act like weirdos and like what you know, you know whatever. To oh, it could actually change them into monsters, monsters, murderers. And of course, it was far more complex than, than that. Yeah. It's like that was a very special, you know, case. But that potential, you know, is there depending on you know the person and the. The influence, you know, he was obviously a gifted, if you could use that word, brainwasher, you right. know, um, you know, cult leader, you know, type. So for the average person listen, listening to this, is there, is there a message for us? I think about that all the time because I see the promise. I've seen it in my own mm -hmm. life. I've been in recovery from uh, addiction since 2013 around. I was addicted to pornography, prostitutes, strip clubs, like the whole, yeah. the whole gamut. 
And uh, I worked my ass off to get sober. I'm talking at times seven meetings a week, seven recovery meetings mm. a week, 12-step meetings. And for six or seven years, I was diligently working that path. And then I heard um, Gabor Mate on a podcast with Tim Ferriss, and he says the number one treatment he's seen for addicts is ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't someone who dabbled in uh, drugs, even alcohol. I, I didn't drink much. I didn't drug almost at all. Yeah. Through my teenage years, just wasn't my life. Uh, but when I heard him say that, my ears perked up. And despite the fact that I was sober, um, I still was working hard at it. There was still obsessive thoughts. There was still a lot of anxiety. There was still multiple meetings a week. Yeah. Um, and today, post some ayahuasca journeys and some other uh, psychedelic experiences, I don't go to meetings. I don't have anxiety. I don't struggle. I don't obsess. So I've seen it personally. I guess my question for you is, mm. Um, and this goes hand in hand with what you said, that this isn't people looking to take the the easy way out necessarily. It was work. And mm-hmm. it's condensed work often, right? Yeah. It's taking a lot of work and putting it into um, a small amount of time. Mm. What Scientifically, what do you think happened to, to me or to other people that allowed me to live with more freedom today because of a few of these experiences? Well, in terms of uh, the brain and behavior, I mean, we're, we we're creatures of habit. All animals are creatures of habit necessarily. And we get stuck in ruts. And ruts are important. If we had to kind of face reality de nuvo at every point, like I wouldn't be able to walk down the stairs. I wouldn't be able to cross the street. You know, you have to sort of go on autopilot with so much of your interaction with the world. And there's a downside to that. You know, we can fall into these suboptimal patterns, you know, such as addictions and even even things where we tell ourselves sometimes for years in a, a million different ways, God, I got to stop. I can't I can't do this. And I did like, stop. Right. So I'm like, I did behaviorally. I stopped. But it but still was didn't. a. Yeah. Yeah. You weren't out of it. You were still in. In, in terms of the work I've done with, in terms of a psychedelics and addiction formally, well, I've studied survey work with a lot of different substances, methamphetamine and, and, and cocaine and opioids and cannabis and um, alcohol, tobacco. But in the lab work, I've focused on uh, tobacco addiction, given its, its, uh, its prominence. And also it was something that hadn't been looked at, and so there was some, some attraction to that in terms of treatment with psychedelics. Um, but... I kind of think of it as really with all addictions, including the so-called behavioral addiction. I mean, it's all behavioral, but, you know, the sexual addictions, which frankly aren't still considered addictions in the psychiatric Bible, like, like whatever that is purely descriptive and it changes every 10 years. Like, whatever, these are addictions. Like everything I know as a scientist, these are addictions. You know, the the, the issues I can tell you the solution was the same, right? We... I was in a program, you know, they call it anonymous, so no one puts their mm-hmm. name out there. So I won't name the actual program, but it was a recovery for people struggling struggling with uh, uh, sexual addictions. There are a number of different ones. I was in one of them. Mm-hmm. And it was copy and paste of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Just one word <laughs> changed. Instead of saying we're struggling with alcohol, we're struggling with sex. I mean, that's that's all. So the solution was the the same. Right. All the real patterns are the same, you know, telling yourself a million times, I know this is an issue. I got to stop. It's still struggling still. And and the, 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 your description, what kind of struck home with me is that, you know, whether it's smoking, you know, whether it's sexual addictions, you know, you name it. It's like, 
whenever you're still having that, I think of the old cartoons. I, I try to, you know, I, I'm a pretty simple guy, you know, I get into the highfalutin signs, but sometimes it just comes down to these simple th things, these uh, analogies, you know, the old cartoons with the devil and the angel on your shoulder. It's mm -hmm. like, ah, come on, just have <laughs> one more. Just, you know, just do this, go to the strip club, have the cigarette, whatever it is. And it's like, oh no, you know, you've really told yourself that's not the right thing to do. And you have to be on a, a better, there's a better way. And, a, you know, for these important reasons, whenever that argument is still happening, you're still in it. Correct. You're still, as soon as you find yourself tempted, it's, it's the game, you know, whether it's right, then you might stave off that to, you know, that urge, but it's going to get you at some, and, and you're still going to have, you're still in the addiction, even if you haven't used for a long time, because you're still fighting that. And, and one of the things that psychedelics can prompt is something that you see with all of these addictions outside of psychedelic treatment. And you could see it with heroin, with cigarette smoking, there are times where it may be the thousandth time they've tried, but there are times when I think of it like the tectonic plates of the psyche shift and someone knows that they're done. Like it hits their soul like so deeply yeah. and like they realize they've, they've reached a step. And a really good book on this by a, a great psychologist, not focused on psychedelics at all, but by Bill Miller, um, uh, you know, wrote, wrote this book about quantum change, how people in science, we focus on incremental change and that's what we know how to do. And, you know, sometimes it works, a lot of times it doesn't, but in, in, in the world. And when you see did survey research, man, it's not uncommon, but it's filled, you know, the, the, you know, the religions and, you know, and, and the, the story, the literature, you know, uh, Scrooge, um, you know, Christmas Carol, mm -hmm. the transformation, Saul on the road to Damascus, these stories of radical transformation happen. And there's real life e examples of this stuff happening. And it, it may be the thousandth time in even something like heroin, cigarette smoking. I, he gave an example in his book of this guy struggling to quit or he was, I don't think he was even struggling, uh, but he was picking up his 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 little daughter from her from school or daycare in the uh, I guess it was school and it was a a rainy day he was in the car and he was there a little early and he reached for his pack of cigarettes oh I'm out I'm gonna you know oh stores up the road I can go grab a pack and be back and and he started to drive away and just as he was driving away he sees his daughter come out of the school. Oh. And for just a split second, he told himself, I didn't see that. I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> and he caught himself. Right. It was like, my God, I just, I was going to leave my daughter in the rain. For a pack of cigarettes. I'm done. Right. You know, sometimes it takes something like that to the, the universe to reflect yourself to, and you see it from a certain lens. And this is like, that was a psychedelic experience, I would say. Right. That was this radically different view of reality, a useful view of reality that just hit so deep and connected to the core of who he was that there was no going back. I got to change. Right. It's like, no, it's, it's clear now. It's my daughter or cigarettes. And right. once you really put it that way, there's no competition. The devil right. and the angel are gone. Like, 
no, we're not arguing over, you know, right. whether you love your daughter or not. Like, boom. Right. The denial has been shattered. It's over. Yeah. I yeah. think about for me, like what that impetus was, it was the recognition that um, there were, like I was, I kept upping the experience. And then I had this, what I call a top shelf experience. When I share my story, I had this top shelf experience, which was, uh, you know, something with two sexual partners at the same time. And I mm. did that. And it was always this experience that gave me this tremendous sense of peace. And I kept it there saying, okay, if I'm really in a rut, that's where I'm going. Mm. And I did it and it did nothing for me. And I was like, wow, it felt like this stale pornographic material that I watched and needed to change out. And that thought of what's next, like, where do I go to from here? And just all the yeah. possibilities. I was like, okay, this, this can get really dangerous really fast. And I just said, I'm done. I'm absolutely done. And that was the, that was the end, which sounds like a surprising there are people who've gone to prison for their addictions and they haven't changed their mind about it they've come out and oh yeah done the same thing but there's this was something internal that just said oh my goodness i'm chasing an endless an endless path and there's and something about like you had a, a if i'm hearing you correctly this part of the insight was into the future like i'm on a, it's not just doing this thing right now i'm on a path correct and this is where like what is it, it never ends five partners ten par like what's it going right. to take next week or a exactly. year from now and it's not going to get better and i'm still going to ultimately feel like crap <laughs> you know like you know in this recognition that just like it's this path it's like one of the, my participants in the smoking research said she had a vision where it was actually a uh a, this kind of she said it was like the andy warhol like the you know thousand pictures of the the campbell soup you know, that kind of iconic or the Marilyn Monroe's, like the repeating, you know, iconic images, the Andy Warhol style. And, and she said, it was like, I saw myself smoking a cigarette and one bit, and then it blew out. And then there was like four. And then there was, you know, it just kept like, expanding. And this, then there were the like a million. And she realized like one of the things that kind of, you know, the boring old talk, cognitive behavioral therapy to help people quit smoking that we give them before, you know, well, it's not about, the cigarette or not it's about being a smoker versus not and and she said it just hit home it's really it's not about it's this cigarette versus not it's about a million cigarettes versus no right like do you want to smoke the next million cigarettes 10 million cigarettes or not and like sounds like you you saw a vision of of the future you know you were aware of what path that was you know going and like when you look at the path the yeah, total back package where it comes from. like Right, starting with catalogs, going to pornography, going from there to strip clubs, going from there to prostitutes, each one progressively more dangerous and risky. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, like, wow, this just this is gonna keep going. Where do I go? Where do I go to from from here? So it's seeing the past and seeing the future and saying, yeah. I need off this path. I need a, I need a different way. Right? Big picture vision, what? that integration that in psychedelics and in, in different ways can give People can see broader, I think, across different dimensions, whether it's socially, seeing how your connection to others, and whether it's across time, seeing yourself as this unfolding narrative oh, in so more of a clear so way. And again, I said psychedelic experiences aren't just when you have right. a psychedelic, like you can have one of these aha, just insightful moments this of clarity where you kind of st you have this overview look of your life and you're like, hold on, I don't want to be doing that. Why am I right. doing that? Right. It's fascinating. Yeah, I saw somewhere it's like compassion is not an absence of the truth. It's like a zoomed out vision or a zoomed out version and you add more things into it. And that's like, that's true too. It's just more truth. 
Right, right. And kind of right. the same thing as a psychedelic. I see that. I've never heard it described that way. I like that. Yeah. And I really yeah. like to focus on the, the sexual. I mean, I'm a strong advocate for this. Is, I focused on sexual risk in terms of some of my research on other drugs like cocaine and alcohol about how people get into pat where there's this interaction between substance use and people. And, and sexual risk where people would do things, including I developed models of, uh, of uh, asking people hypothetical questions like would they have sex, this or that scenario, with or without, whether they'd use a condom. You know, right. in situation I found that like people on s certain substances like cocaine and methamphetamine and alcohol, they're more willing to say, oh, even if they had to wait an hour for a condom, they just say screw it. And they would if they're on the alcohol or if they regularly use alcohol. If they're actually on alcohol, on alcohol, actually both are true, but what hadn't been done before, I really, you know, took a look at it was that acute aspect that it's not just a trait effect. It's not just this cumulative kind of, uh, you know, kind of group comparison. Well, people who use alcohol tend to engage in more risky behavior. It's no, and what a lot of people would say is common sense from experience. You know, they say like, no, when you're out when you're drunk <laughs> you're it's not just you know this history it's like even for that person with that history you know it you're, you you do riskier things when you're actually drunk right. to compared to when you're not or when you're high so that's some cocaine. of what you studied <clears throat> so that's some of what you studied giving someone alcohol and then watching decisions that they make yeah you're doing things like um you would give them a selection of images of of, of people and say well under a casual sex scenario, let's say met at a party, who amongst these would you, just on looks alone, would you be willing to have a one-night stand with? And then you kind of start from there and say, oh, if this is your your partner, like, hey, let's say they want to have, you know, how likely are you to use a condom with them if you have one? And then asking questions, well, what if you had to wait five minutes? What do you have to wait an hour? What if you had to meet up with them the next day, 24 hours later, because there's no condom? How likely are you? And just to asking them is enough? Asking them and getting responses is enough for a scientific study? Yeah, yeah. So you do as much as you can to anchor that because obviously there's some ethics involved. I don't want to make those you know, real choices for people. But um, you see that it's tightly correlated with, with real-life sexual um, uh, uh, decisions in a, a variety of ways. You, um, uh, you – that the, the – the data, there are patterns in the data that, that kind of look and smell like what we would expect from how people treat a delayed, you know, consequence. So it, for every opportunity to validate, to look like, you know, oh, it, do you see higher propensity of, 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 of this risk taking in this model compared to, you know, standard, um, you know, uh, more accepted methods of assessing whether someone engages in risk, sexual risk behavior, you know, you see, you know, it's well correlated. And so every way to kind of validate it, you do see, and in other research with other kind of rewards, like monetary or that you could you, actually give in the moment. Yeah. Where that has been done. And I've done some of that research. You compare like delayed rewards for like, you know, the $10 now versus $50 in a month. You do that under real and hypothetical conditions. I've done research like that, and you get the same answer. So, really? Yeah, yeah. The people wow. are very good at telling you um, hypothetically what they would do because that the decision is actually real, even though the consequences are. And and brain imaging studies, fMRI studies, have shown that 
when you compare real versus hypothetical choices in scenarios like this, that the same brain areas light up. And when they make the, and when they make the short-term decision, oh, I'll take the, the smaller amount of money now, that you see the same sort of the, the limbic structures, the, the reward centers are more so lighting up, active. Got it. And the more frontal lobe, you know, the forethought and putting the brakes on Aries light up when you're taking the larger later rewards. So there's a lot of research suggesting that these hypothetical methods are giving you a glimpse. They're a reasonable proxy for what people would do. So I focused on to bring it up because I focused a lot on sexual behavior and I also have an interest in sexual addiction. And plenty of people have reached out. Hey, do you have a study for, you know, pornography addiction or, or sexual addiction, visiting sex work, you, you name it. And, you know, like a lot of the stuff, you know, unfortunately, no, but that's a great idea. And you don't know what to tell the person other than stay in professional help, seek professional help. We don't have a study like that right now, but it's definitely something that I would like to study in the future because I'm very much of the philosophical and scientific uh, viewpoint that, it's arbitrary, whether it's a substance or some other rewarding behavior in the environment. Addiction is addiction. It doesn't matter whether it's ice cream or cocaine or pornography. It can, it can, all the same fundamental patterns emerge. Yeah, I can tell you anecdotally, uh, being in recovery meetings and seeing hundreds of people over the years um, come into those meetings, I would say about, there were 50 50 of the ways people got in. Some were, they got caught by their wife cheating on them mm -hmm. or some variation of uh, something sexual on the outside that created a problem in their life. And then they made their way in. It was similar to my story. And then the others were people who were in a, a program, let's say like Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous, another um, substance addiction. And as they were working with their sponsor or therapist, they recognized that underlying that was a sex addiction. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen many, many people is that they've, they got their substance addiction under control and their sex addiction was just this monster over. that they couldn't, couldn't pin down, just much, much, much more difficult. So in terms of, I don't know what the science says about it being an addiction, but in terms of um, anecdotally and seeing a lot of people like this, is there seemed to be much more power in whatever was driving the sex addiction. Obviously, I'm talking from very biased view, people who are <laughs> dealing with their sex addiction, mm -hmm. but from these people, they got their alcohol addiction under control. They got their drug addiction under control. The sex addiction, they couldn't. It was something much more powerful there for them. And I'm in the minority in terms of addiction scientists that I, I mean, I frankly think you have more insight than most addiction scientists in this regard, really, at a fundamental level. Like, because it, again, you know, these things aren't even formally considered, you know, addict. I mean, well, the way that the the psychiatric Bible DSM defines them as substance use disorder. So even the no name, the nomenclature right. just implies that it can't be, you know, there's, they've gotten away from the word addiction. Do they there's say, all these fads in science. Where do they, they say the same with gambling? Is gambling in the same category as sex? Because it's also a behavior. It's not a substance. So I would consider it, again, like an addiction, but it's not considered an addiction. Also, I believe technically a, comp uh, a compulsive disorder is how it's. But, you know, all of these things you correct. can call compulsion, compulsion to yeah. drink do cocaine, you know, uh, use pornography to gamble. But I would say the same thing there. You know, all of the basic patterns emerge. Um, and I've always been attracted to the science that really tells us what's in common across these addictions. Not, you know, the difference right. is important. You, know, you get more, you know, withdrawal with heroin than you get with cocaine. You have to be aware of these, you know, 
differences, especially if you're talking about helping people and there's a different landscape. Obviously, tobacco is very different than, you know, alcohol and other, you know, but in terms of the addiction itself, the struggle, it's the same uh, phenomenon. Yeah, that and and I'm in the minority with when it comes to that, you know, in terms of and so that doesn't limit to the, you know, the 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 uh, uh, you know the substances, you know, and these same patterns emerge again even in pigeons and rats, like the basic behavioral research of how organisms will defect on their same, you know, you ask them, you ask a, pr- a pigeon, and you don't use, you don't talk, but right. you, through behavioral preparations, giving them choices, you ask it whether it prefer like a larger amount of grain or a smaller amount of grain, and they're a little bit hungry. And that, you know, that, that decision is a minute ahead, you know, those consequences are a minute ahead of time, they'll, they'll take the larger one, but then as you bring those decisions closer and closer, they'll defect on their pre- even pre-commitment. Even when they make a decision beforehand, you'd give them the, opp- the opportunity to defect on their, on them, on their own selves. <laughs> they will do so, so just like a person. So how do you do that practically? Is it a distance that they have to get to? Well, or? it's temporal distance is what, is what I mean. So you set up, you know, where the, the, the two consequences are, you know, make up, you know, like, you know, 40 seconds now versus, you know, 50 seconds from now, which is a long time for a pigeon. And But how can the pigeon understand what's coming? Well, but because you trained them through repeated trials where they okay. understand this scenario because oh, they've been in it dozens of times. And like kind of, kind of a Pavlo's dog where there's a Yeah, this type of scenario where you okay. really set in the and it's only through the animal getting used to the scenario. They know, oh, I'm here again. I know what these consequences are. Understood. And so in in any way till behavior stabilizes till it's pretty like uh oh, pretty much at some threshold something like 90%. 90% of the time and across that this isn't changing now they've kind of stabilized that they've gotten enough experience they they prefer this thing and then you kind of with the same distance temporal distance between them let's say there's a 10 seconds delay you bring it closer it's like now this one's in 5 seconds and that one's in 15 seconds and the now they'll will switch to the smaller sooner and, and and you can set up scenarios where even in the same trial they will again have a, this opportunity to defect on they've already made a, a choice for themselves and you get it gets really complex pigeons will even make a choice to press a lever or peck on a key to make an option disappear that will tempt them to defect on themselves so if a pigeon mm-hmm. will say you know it's like devil get behind me you know it's like <laughs> i don't want you i'm not going to go to the whatever strip club i'm not going to put myself right, in my temptation. version of not using an iphone for a while yes yes right. it's like because if it's in my pocket i'm probably going to be you know and so right. i'm going to like put it on the other side of the room for the rest of the day okay Pid- even pigeons will do the same thing they'll recognize and i'm anthropomorphizing but the behavior the same patterns they will say i will make this response to make this other you know, lever or response option inoperable. Um, so because in the past when it has been, I know as time goes on, I'm going to defect on my own decision. I mean, it's just <laughs> like if you're familiar with the marshmallow experiments. The one and two marshmallows? Yes, the yeah. Walter Michelle experiment with the little kids. Um, and whether they're able to wait for the more preferred snack. Yeah, is, you can go in detail on it just in case some of the listeners don't. Yeah, so he did research decades ago on this psychological researcher on um, 
on little kids and their ability to, and he studied different ages and different scenarios, but the basic setup is, will a little kid um, wait for this larger preferred reward? Uh, so whether it be one marshmallow, two marshmallows, or a marshmallow versus a maybe a more preferred snack for that kid, maybe cookies is preferred over marshmallows. Like, well, you can have the marshmallow anytime you want to. Um, but you know, the per they said they want to have the cookie, but I'm going to leave the room and you don't know when I'm going to come back, but when I come back, you can have the cookie. But anytime you want to, <laughs> you can just go ahead and eat the marshmallow, but then you're not going to get the cookie. And you look, and whether they wait or not is predictive of like SAT scores, you know, uh, down the, I mean, when Very you take scary. like, you know, six year olds and do this, it'll be, you know, predictive of their college entrance performance. And, and I believe now, you know, data even past that, it's like, and this, this is something that's not, we don't focus on it because it's not intelligence. It's independent from intelligence. Um, this propensity to, to, to be patient seems to be a really important skill that underlies much of our functioning in the world. And kids will adopt strategies like without even um, you scripting them. Like certain kids will just, they'll turn around. And I they just, they figured <laughs> right. out that like, I'm only going to get through this if I turn around and just don't look at it. And, uh, and ki some kids will say they have this like cognitively complex strategy of, you know, I pretended it wasn't a marshmallow. I pretended it was a fluffy cloud sort of that they just, I'm pretending it's something else. Oh, so they'll tell so, you afterwards what they did. Exactly. And so he's sort of <laughs> unpacking, like, how did you get through that? And so... Um, and is there, I, I don't remember the study, but is so like as it went longer, they were more likely to eat it. Right, right. And right. he always gave it open-ended. It wasn't saying, hey, I'll come back in five minutes and you get more. It was always. He did variation. So I don't want to, it's been a while since I've, I've, I've looked into, you know, the particulars. Right. So I don't, I, I remember he did lots of variations. Um, so I believe is that like something varying that could time. Be, is that something that could be taught? Meaning if, if you're saying that a yes. six-year-old is predictive of their SAT score then I kind of want to figure out with my four and three-year-old and two-year-old right, how which to teach is, whatever this is. Which is why teaching stuff like, you know, you name it, gardening, um, learning any skill, like taking karate, jujitsu, playing chess, like anything where it's not instant, it's, it's not Instagram, <laughs> you know, it's not TV, but things that require, like the rewards come in slowly but there are much bigger rewards. Like you work on this thing and now you can play the piano. You know, you couldn't right. do that the first day, but now you can play a song because so you've been working kids, on it a few months. So teaching kids those kind of things are more likely to get them to have that delayed gratification, which can set them up for a much better life. Right, right. And that's drawing from, I mean, we do know that in like simpler ways that you can study more quickly in the laboratory that you can teach some of these skills and that you can make people more patient. And you can even teach pigeons to be, again, all these same patterns emerge. You can teach the pigeons to be more patient by giving them experience with waiting for a longer, later reward. So, you know, just, you know, you know, the, the more you can you know, in terms of raising human beings, I think about this with my six-year-old, the more I can get him involved with things that are long and drawn out, the rewards come over time, you develop relationships, you develop skills, you know, those are theoretically setting them up to have this more general trait of 
of patience in life, you know, being willing and, and probably less likely to fall into an, an addiction and other things that we may not call addiction. Like say you struggle with your, like, you know, a violent temper and whether even just yelling at a loved one, you know, getting arguments with your spouse, saying things that you then regret later. And you need to tell yourself, I did it again. I flew off the handle and I, I said this harmful thing to someone I love that I regret. And that's a pat, like, I'd say that's an addiction. If it's something you're struggling, you regret, you recognize afterwards, like I did it, I shouldn't have done it, but I also did it last week and I told myself I wouldn't do it again. And I did it two days before that, like that's an addiction. And so I think the less likely you are, are to fall prey to these immediate, gra oh, that would be really good to tell this person what I really think and, and hurt them. I mean, that's an immediate reward the same way that the cocaine or the the sexual gratification or the ice cream or the tv you know you know so the more you can kind of fill their behavioral economy with these kind of extended reinforcing relationships which right. sounds like a nerdy way of saying but there's a very human side part of yeah. that is developing relationships with people yeah you treat your friends well and they'll treat you well over time and and if you're a jerk they're not going to want to play with you that's really, really, that's probably the most important thing. Well, I, in the I, moment, you may have your toy, but in the long term, you won't have a, a friend. Right. And frankly, I worry way more about, I'm, I'm focused way more on that with my kid than I am with, you know, I'm concerned about their math and verbal skills, but I'm really happy that I hear from the teacher, like, yeah, he gets along with his classmates. He doesn't, you know, he's, he's, he's fitting into that social matrix and not kind of doing these things I've had he's had little friends that have been on the more impulsive side and have you know hitting their friends and hogging the tour and you know there's a spectrum of course all kids are going to have that selfishness but relatively speaking I mean that's probably the most important thing that kids are learning in school especially or like in elementary school probably far more important for life success than their math and verbal skills I would I would guess yeah especially considering there's excel no I'm kidding. What's that? I said, especially considering there's Excel and now Chat GPT. Yeah, yeah, my, exactly. You don't need to learn any of that stuff. Just, that's all automated. Chat GPT is not going to help you be patient, probably not yet. My four-year-old son the other day says, "He's like, when is my birthday? His birthday's on June second. How many days to my birthday? Can you ask Siri?" And then he says, <laughs> "He says, what did Chat GPT say?" <laughs> Compare the response. It's like playing right. like mom versus dad. Like I'm going to take the most favorable response. Right. Let's see what they say. <laughs> Can do your birthday early according to ChatGPT. I'm curious, according to your that the study of the marshmallow, how this would match with, you know, the concept of a drug of choice in addiction. So someone may really go after cocaine, but something like marijuana may not do it for them. They may enjoy it, but it doesn't give them mm -hmm. that same addiction. So how this would match up with the um, gratification idea, right? So yeah. if, if you measured me back 10 years ago on something sexual versus something like wine, which I may enjoy mm -hmm. a glass of wine, but there wasn't that addiction to it, you'd get a very, very different result. Right, right. So there's evidence for both. Again, I, I've been more focused on those commonalities, but there is definitely a difference. We have different biologies, and I think that's a part of it. And part of it may be early, um, you know, early development that might push us. We need more research into this. Um, we certainly know there's a huge connection between early abuse of a variety of, of types and, and, and very hardcore addictive 
you know, behavior, you know, it's not a perfect correlation, but um, there are, and part of it might just be plain genetics, you know, hey, cannabis might make someone just like really paranoid, even though they, they have no moral right. quality, you know, they like tried it plenty of times, they're just like, I'm all for, you know, whatever, giving a try, but they just say, it just freaks me out and it's not enjoyable, especially in any social situation. Right, I'm not talking cocaine about makes them, right. You know, cocaine, actually, most people who try it like it. It's, it's an interesting... <laughs> opioids are, in, like, this I might mean, surprise a lot of people. A lot of people try, whether it's heroin, whatever, a lot of people try opioids, including, like, medically, and things medically, like morphine, fentanyl, I mean, same exact family as, you know, her heroin, et cetera, um, where they're like, why do people... Their conclusion is, why do people like this? It just makes me feel slightly queasy and not normal. People who are social drinkers... It's alcohol are far more likely to enjoy an opioid high compared to people who are teetotalers that don't drink much or drink drink at all. And so, now something like cocaine, far more people will will enjoy it if they try it. But not everyone goes off the off the rails. That but there are these. To get back to your question, there are these individual differences for whatever for a variety of reasons. Probably some just straight up genetic that. Someone is attracted more to sedatives. Someone's attracted more right. to stimulants. And there's plenty of pe people that are attracted enough to both, you know. And so, but there's always something out there for you. Like your example with, you know, um, you know, someone that they're, they had a problem with the substance, but now they've channeled it into the sexual stuff has gone off the Correct. handle. Like there's always something. Never assume it's about that one thing because, like, yeah, maybe opioids aren't your thing. Okay, great. Yeah, so you're take not it away be, and you'll find another place. Yeah, to... there's going to be something else you're yeah. into, <laughs> you <Right>. know. If <laughs> so, it really is something deeper, like this deeper narrative about one's life, about this this choice of them going down a path and this vision of of is this who I am? Is does this align with what I find meaningful in life? And from a behavioral perspective, it's like that's just the extended behavioral economy. Like I'm on this path that's leading to all this stuff. Like I really value my relationship with my wife and this is a threat to that. I really value being a good example for my kids and hope to be alive when they graduate from high school and college. And, and maybe one day, maybe I'll have grandkids when I want to be alive for all that. All of these things that this constellation of consequences that are, are it's really more about that. That's the... That's what I view as the heart of addiction that, and again, there may be differences in what people are attracted mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, in terms of what reward, what reinforcement right, might But the underlying angst void. is very similar. There's this existential, actually my first participant in the smoking cessation research with psilocybin put it this way, there, it's an incessant need. It's a human thing, this incessant need, like you're never satisfied and it's kind of the human and maybe the animal condition. I just think of, you know, plants, their strategy is like put it roots, put your solar panels up and collect your energy. <laughs> you know, animals are doers. We got to forage around. We got to eat something else that's alive in order to live. We've got to go do our thing. We got to, you know, you know, find the food. We got to avoid the predators, whatever it is. And in humans, of course, that's where we come from and we're doers as well. It seems like there's always this thing, like we're not complete, like we need to do something that 
and I think it, for the human, it can be existential, like the, you know, this kind of, this need, you know, to, to, to kind of quell that anxiety of that we are, we're aware, unlike the other animals, right. that we are temporary, you know, we're going to die. So is it almost like a, a, what are we doing here? Like this need to answer that question almost. I, I think so. And this gets, and this goes certainly beyond the science. Let me be clear right. about this is kind of mixing what I know about science with philosophy in terms of just what I think is going on. So I can't support it with all right. the studies. No <laughs> one can, but I really do think it comes down to, there is something very existential about addiction in people that it, it, there's a void that for everyone needs to be filled. I mean, you know, we grow up being these little people that no less than all these big people around us. And we're constantly, we spend all these years being told you don't, you got to follow the rules. You got to do, get with the program. And then we plug into a society with all these expectations. And then we're met. We, even if we know it when we're kids and we get to an age, we realize like, Oh gosh, I really am going to die at some point. And it's a heavy burden you know, and then confronting the unfairness in life. I mean, the horrors that can be in life and you could read about it in history and, and see it on the news and then, you know, experience it. If you live long enough, you'll experience some of it yourself like that. You know, you can take as negative view as you want to about life and, you know, you could view the human as a horrible creature and just not, life is nothing but... You know, my philosophical stance is like that kind of defines everything. The fact that there is beauty and pursuit of truth and um, and love. Um, despite that background of having crawled out of the dirt and having this kind of, you know, like that's what it's all about. It defines it. It actually is the reason that it makes those. It's the transcendence of that that kind of makes it all meaningful to me personally. There's a quote that the most important decision you'll ever make is whether the world is mostly friendly or mostly hostile. Is that that? Yeah. In fact, there was this guy that did this research. It's been somewhat controversial on second guess, but I think the, the basic point stands that like he figured out, oh, things like cocaine and morphine aren't so addictive in rats when you give them a playground and give them like litter mates and running wheels and cardboard tubes to run down. Like he called it a rat park. And when you, um, when you give them that, their, their consumption of, they these, can ignore the cocaine. They, yeah. They, they, they'll use it like a 20th of the amount that they would when they're stuck in basically solitary confinement for a rat. You're in a cage by yourself. The floor is not even soft. You know, there's not, you're on standing on wire and there's one source of enjoyment. Well, you can you can sniff your rear end and or press this button and get an injection of cocaine. It's like, yep, I'm going to sit there and pound away at that. So and one of his takeaways philosophically was that, you know, it kind of comes down to whether you view the world very much like you said, whether you view the world as a playground or a prison. And I really view it. That's a and that's a hard that's a struggle, right? That is, you know, and and depending on someone's experiences, that may be harder or easier to, uh, yeah, to arrive at. Yeah, and and I think when when we look at those moments in our life where we do feel connected and filled with uh, with meaning, we are kind of looking at the life as 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 a miracle or a playground. I mean, I think of one guy who was in our. We did some a study of uh, people with cancer related 
end of life or potentially end of life. They weren't necessarily terminal, but it had to be very life-threatening. Some were potentially terminal or very much terminal. Um, and this one, he was actually a psychologist himself, um, worked in industry. He was an industrial organizational psychologist, but he just filled with tears the next day. And this is what always impresses what me. What was his study with them? It was using psilocybin so, to help to, them right. with the anxiety and depression surrounding their cancer. And he just said... So these are terminally ill people who know that they're... Right, that they don't have right. long to live. Or at least potentially terminal. It has Correct. to be life-threatening enough. And, uh, and so that, that, was whole, become, that was the whole group? Everyone you studied? Yeah, 51 people in that study. And we You're giving them all psilocybin? Yeah, we gave First them, experience of their life? Was there a certain... Um, a good chunk. Some had had psilocybin experience, but if they had psychedelic experience, it had to have been many years ago, and it had to have not been very meaningful for them. Understood. So some people, it's like, yeah, they tried it once in college, and they giggled, and that's all they have to say about it. And that was fine, but I'm forgetting the percentage, but I think it was a, my, I think most, yeah, most had not used. And um, were they experiencing, were the 51 people experiencing, all experiencing depression? Maybe some were already Yeah, so there's no, again, the limits of the psychiatric rival, right. the DSM, uh, you know, there's no, there should be, but there's no disorder called existential distress. <laughs> um, I'd say, actually argue there's evidence like SSRIs are, are even less effective in the, you know, then in standard major depressive disorder, but they all had to satisfy uh, one of several predefined disorders that involved either depression, anxiety, or both. And the way it shook out is about a third satisfied disorders associated with depression, about a third satisfied disorders associated with anxiety, about a third both. But but even if you don't meet, you know. Uh, diagnostic criteria like you meet the formal you meet all of the check marks to get this diagnosis like depression was elevated they were all pretty struggling. much everyone yeah and and, and what were the and, results of the oh dramatic reductions and in, down into the normal range on average um with uh six months later you know most you know people in uh in remission you know like not showing evidence that they would have any disorder and and this one individual and everyone was one experience one high-dose experience, so the control condition, and they were separated by a month, was they had a trivial dose. More so we could truthfully tell people, you're going to have you know, two psilocybin sessions, although at least one will be high. Both could be high. Could be a high and a medium. Could be a high and a low. In truth, so that was a realistic range of possibilities, but in truth, everyone got uh, a high-dose and a trivial dose that was probably so low that... They didn't feel it's it. what you would call a microdose, microdose these days. It was kind of before the microdosing was a thing. <laughs> and we didn't have a true placebo. This was like about one milligram. So we didn't have a true placebo to compare it to. So we couldn't really evaluate it as a, as a microdose. But um, yeah, so essentially one, essentially one high dose experience. And six months later, you're seeing improvement across Dramatic. Everyone. Yeah, yeah. And then our colleagues at NYU um, who published at the same time as, a, as us, they came out with a follow-up paper with the people that survived four or five years, four to five years later and found, you know, amongst those people, virtually unchanged results. So it really like... So what more is very, needed after you have studies like this and you have people struggling like that? What, what more is needed as a society to say, okay, if someone's end of life, terminally ill, give them psilocybin? What more is needed than these two studies? So the FDA would need to approve it. And that's a, a little bit of an extra challenge for it because this isn't a disorder that's defined already, even though it is a problem. 
So actually, the early folks that were interested that we essentially handed off our research and, and helped, um, for example, the USONA uh, group that's a nonprofit developing psilocybin for depression, they were initially considering this cancer indication, but then realized, oh, well, we could help a lot more people with depression if that's feasible. So it was a little bit more of a, of a risk. So let's see if this works for just straight up depression. And then, you know, a good chunk of these people with cancer would qualify for that if it's approved. So, so. Did it help the cancer in any cases? Did you measure that? We, we weren't set up to look at that because frankly, it was so hard to recruit and we, you have to, we had to get people of a variety of different types of cancer, which really, you know, from the folks that even though it was really devastating to their life in terms of the impact, you know, that in terms of prognosis, it was pretty good. And even though there was a chance it could come back and, and, and do them in to people that, you know, we knew, wow, it's a real gamble, whether they're going to be around for the six month follow-up. And sometimes they, they weren't. They were so there was, a, and they different types, you know, everything from bone cancer to, you know, skin cancer, just su such a variety that, and a relatively small, and 51 is pretty big for the psychedelic studies that have been done, but for looking at something that would be an indirect effect, that would be more of a psychosomatic effect, I, be I bet you would get it because we know enough about the nature of psychosomatic medicine that you change someone's outlook, positive outlook you can affect actual medical, measurable medical um, um, outcomes. I think you would need more like several hundred people to be able to show that. And you would need, you'd need a tighter study, like we're just going to study bone cancer, for example. Right. You know, yeah, and be very we need to... like 200 people. And then, you know, so we weren't, but I think in the future, that's a possibility. The one thing about this guy that, that made me go down this road with cancer is that the the playground versus the, versus the prison thing. I mean, he just, the next day, he was just like in tears saying, this, I, like life is this, this miracle. And it's just crazy. We like, we don't, we forgot it. It's like, he's just like, he's like, I came here and I walked down the street and it's like, there's this tree. And it's like, this is an absolute miracle. What in the world is happening here? And there's all these other beings, human beings that like have all, like, it's it's such a deep and it makes you sound kind of like an idiot, you know. I was like, well, what do you mean? But it's yeah, a happy there's trees idiot. and there's people. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. it's just like this deep, deep, like realization. Like if you just popped into this reality out of nowhere, it's like, whoa, this is mind blowing. That we are living in a miracle. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, it, maybe You're not. Right. I can't fly, but like, I can. You know. I can I can go up to people on the street and say how how are you I want to get to know you like I you could you could like, this I want to learn cool. to play the violin right like I can it's like it's a playground what do you want to yeah. do and especially these days and, and you know and in a, in a country like this and in modern times and you know but yet so many people feel like oh gosh you're locked into this like it's a job you don't like and these patterns that are you know you're into whatever it is, you know, these various addictions and you just feel like life is just a, a prison. Despite the fact, like sometimes you change that perspective and you look and realize, I mean, just miraculously like, wow, look, look at what we can do. Like just to be alive. Like that's weird. Did you sit with <laughs> these 51 people? No, but I talked with all of them before and after I have guided dozens of sessions in that study i 
Oh, I, I was a guide for some of them. So when I'm forgetting how many, probably six or seven, maybe in that study. What's that like? Oh, that's, those have been some of the most meaningful, probably have learned more. I have learned more than that, than the actual, you know, the <laughs> statistics and the publishing the papers and, and crunching the numbers, that side of things. I mean, just, I've just met so many people that I've learned from, you know, that are facing, you know, death and some, I mean, like the gentleman I just spoke about, um, but, and really all of these studies where I've served as a, as a guide, um, in these sessions, uh, yeah, yeah, these are, it, it feels, I mean, sometimes I actually was telling a, a friend this just last night, uh, on the, on the phone that if I'm hit by a bus tomorrow, at least, you know, that's one of the things that I can, you know, feel good about. Yeah. Like I was in, I really helped. I mean, it wasn't because of me. I was a part of something bigger, but I really helped set the stage for like these beautiful, important moments for people. Transformations. Transformations that helped them touch base with their humanity and that affected their families. I mean, there's, I mean, there were families that reached out to us after the cancer study that said it just transformed the last several months of their of their father's life. And you just think, oh, this is someone in their 20s. They're going to, their entire matrix, their memories of their father are going right, to be transformed. Worldview. You're you saying know, it's not 70 just a, years from now, like if they're still alive. It's not just the 51 people, it's the, right. And I it's wish huge. we had done a better job studying that because the older research yeah. papers from the 60s said that. It's like, whoa, the transformations in the families were absolutely mind blowing. I'm paraphrasing, but like we should, we should have studied them. You know, because it really, like, you just transform these. I mean, I think of a, 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 a guy about 30 years old dying of pancreatic cancer. You know, he wasn't going to make it. It was bad, you know, with, like, these little kids. And had never had that conversation about what was happening. And then to have that open up. And you just realize, like, this is really affecting people. And, like, those, you know, those kids are probably going to remember... Right. Like these heartfelt conversations about the, you know, the dad in the right way, letting him know what's happening, that he's going away and, and how important that probably is for people going forward. Yeah, it's huge. I'm thinking about my own experiences and coming back home from Costa Rica and my wife starts telling people about how ayahuasca is amazing. And someone says, well, have you done it? She says, no, but my husband has and he's completely different. Yeah. And she saw it more than me. I felt, obviously, certain changes, but it was her observations that made it more real for me. Yeah, and and in some of our re research, we have gotten so-called community observers. There's always a way to make something sound like really boring in science, you know, community observers. Like, you know, the, the, the spouses, the partners, the co-workers, the friends of people that have validated, you know, because you do, you know, you are, so are yeah. these people just... You know, are they full of themselves? They think, and there are anecdotes of uh, you know that I think are real. When I sometimes I get people to reach out, they say like their their son has gotten all off the rails with psychedelics, and their ego is huge, and they talk about being enlightened, but they've alienated themselves from their whole family, and they think they're holier than thou. And you do you do get an impression like, yeah, you can take this in the wrong direction, and if it's not well grounded. It's sort of, uh, yeah, that, that you can be deluded 
And who knows, there's a lot to figure out there. It might be personality type. It might be the setting. It might be that kind of backdrop of the messages they're getting. It might be frequency related. We don't know. Um, I mean, I've known folks that have done psychedelics hundreds of times that seem to be off the rails, but I've also known ones that have done psychedelics hundreds of times that are some of the most genuine, you know, heartfelt, you know, grounded people that I know. So it's a tough equation to figure out, but it does seem that there can be this self-delusional and it's been called spiritual bypassing that you, you think you've gotten this message and you're sort of running with it, but it's kind of ungrounded. I think of uh, Ram Das. That was actually one of my early, like reading Ram Das in college was part of what kind of made me interested in, in psychedelics. And in his book, Be Here Now, there's a page and there's beautiful artwork in that book, which is really cool. But I'm imagining he's saying, uh, yeah, it's one thing to uh, the difference between the, how did he put it? The, the, the mystic and the crazy person is like, you know, the, the mystic has a vision that let's say he's the Buddha, he's the Jesus, you know, um, but the mystic also recognizes that everyone else is too. And the crazy person doesn't get that second part. You know, it's sort of like okay. that ungroundedness, like when you think it's a right. It's in only one sense, it is just about you, but it's, <laughs> right. these are realms where like words fall apart. But it's the most personal, you know, experience possible. But it has to be grounded in the sense that, like, yeah, everyone else is going through this journey of life as well, and you're not above. You are the same, and it's like, yeah, it's. It's grounded if if you consider yourself a, a part of whatever, whatever your model is, if, you know, the divine that, well, so is everyone else. And maybe that's a part of the the grounding that some people don't get. Yeah, I've certainly seen it as kind of a temporary space for certain people, maybe having one or two experiences and then going into that space and then over time that evening out. But that's, yeah, um, I'm sure that's not for everyone, but I I have seen it, but I've seen it with people who do yoga, too. <laughs> absolutely and oh gosh meditation it's you it, know it really is like we as a society we're primed to like see th- and remember the negative experiences with with uh with drugs you know substances but yeah there is a whole like and there's you know a bit of science on it you know essentially bad trips with meditation and people that you know talk about like you know hey they can't take a bath warm long bath now because they kind of go into this space that you know and it, they're a good meditation teacher is like, you need to take a break for a while. Like you're, you know, you're accessing, you know, states of being that, you know, you don't have the stability right now to access and you need to kind of more work on any homework you've gotten from those experiences, right? <laughs> Same with psychedelics so, rather than going back to that. That's the, a question I want to ask you in the psychedelic community. They'll talk a lot about integration and the importance of that in order to, ground the experience to get the benefits of it. Do you find that in the research as well, that it wasn't just a psilocybin experience, but did you do something with those 51 um, patients before and after beyond an interview? Absolutely. That helped to ground the experience? So there was eight hours of preparation. Oh, wow. um, And so that's over several meetings. Um, And preparation in terms of like psychologically what they're dealing with? Yeah, both discussing them so some of it isn't what is what we would do for any psilocybin study. So I, I, you know, the way I formalize it is, and I kind of 
I made a manual for the smoking research to kind of to make it formal to make sure we cover these things. Uh, but um, talk about their their life, their history, their childhood, their current life. Um, so their loved ones, you know, romantic and otherwise, um, both their family of origin and their current family, if any. And um, and I mentioned part of that being their romantic life, um, but their whatever they do for a living, you know, whether it's taking care of kids, whether it's a job of this nature or that nature, um, and then how they orient towards the big questions. And I, I, I use that because I, I'm very strong advocate of, you know, at least as a secular, you know, you know, profession, we need, I'm not telling any, you know, church what to do, the, the psychedelic, you know, the Native American church, the UDV, et cetera, or indigenous communities. But, you know, you kind of bring people this experience where they face the big questions, like don't fill in the blanks for people, you know, and some people view it all through a, you know, a materialist, scientific, whatever lens. Some people talk about different dimensions. Some people, you know, speculate about aliens and you know uh, you know some people will be and you name the religious faith there are people from the you know whatever it is some people, so for those guiding them before during after not to influence not to influence really let them but you're also not there to say no that wasn't you know right that was just you know the serotonin 2a receptors being affected in your brain it's like yeah <laughs> you you can't say whether that was an experience of god yeah. or not right. and i don't think it's our job to bring up but it's also not our job to Admire, you know, it's it's used reflective listening and let them guide. I told the participants when you have an experience like this, you are the world's expert on those philosophical questions. No scientist on the planet can tell you, you know, was that an experience of other dimensions? Was that an experience of God of of this nature, or that nature? Um, but I I, th I do think is important because people touch on those big questions to like at the beginning, like what is your worldview? Well, and, and you could be Richard Dawkins, you know style atheist you mm -hmm. could be of whatever you know and all of it's welcome there's no judgment um just to touch base on what how do you so i think that that's kind of part of it because i want to know where they're coming from you know should they have a profound experience of whatever type um and and you kind of want it's an intimate thing and i want them to be totally free no matter what is and and, and, and you prepare them so Part of it is going through those things, but also then part of it for the cancer studies, obviously discussing their history with cancer and what they've been How struggling they view it, with. their perspective. Got it. Yeah, like what their struggle has been like and what, I mean, that just touches on so many things, their family and, uh, you know, what they've wanted to do in life and, and fears that, you know, of of, of, of the pain of death or, or their, their belief in the afterlife, whether they believe in the afterlife, what, you know, some fear around that, um, all of that. You prepare people, then the session day itself is really, guiding is kind of a misnomer because it's more of, you're there as more of a safety net. It's like a good session, you're checking in every half hour, so how you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Okay, like a physical safety net. Yeah, yeah. Like if, when they have, if they have anxiety, about at a high dose, about a third of the people will have what could be called a bad trip out there. In this context, I say it's a challenging experience because most people who have very scary experiences end up seeing that as part of their healing journey. They, they drew lessons from it. It's like they ran the gauntlet of, and it's like even if they felt at, at one point that they're going to die, it's like they can come out the other end, especially if you're talking about something like 
you know, cancer, dealing with can the fear of cancer and death, like that could be very therapeutic. It's like, wow, I went through an experience where I didn't physically die, but I, I really thought I was going to die and I went through and it was okay. Right. So bad like, would suggest a bad trip would suggest an unproductive trip. You're saying it was difficult, but right. And the really bad thing, and it happens and it was overblown in the propaganda in the late sixties, early seventies. But the really bad thing is like, you know, you know, going, you know, freaking out, getting naked, running across the highway and getting hit by a truck. I mean, you know, again, or jumping from a height, right. which right. very rare, but it has happened. These are really reality altering. So what do you do to substances. protect from that in the studies? To protect them from that. Well, you keep them in a safer one, you prepare them. So that really does, it doesn't guarantee that a, a challenging experience won't happen, but the frequency of the, of certain types of experiences, such as extreme paranoia of the guides, that's very rare. And I think that's a, a tribute to the, the, the preparation work. So the rapport building, I mean, you let them know, like, this may be the most frightening experience of your life. And I tell my participants, I've had multiple vets that have told me this has replaced combat as the most intense experience of their life. So you can't overstate. I've never been in combat. So, right. I mean, that's just above, you <laughs> right. know, For so people I'm who humbled say it's a, by that. It's a, like, it's a shortcut or something easy. I mean, you have a combat veteran saying this oh, the yeah. most intense. Yes. And, and so you, you prepare them for that and, and, and you say you might be, and one of the differences with recreational use is, hey, you might have, you know, dropped ass or taken shrooms at a party and like you find yourself in the back, you know, someone's bedroom at this the house where the party's at crying about your relationship with your mom. And it's like the next day the it's like, oh man, you were wigged out, you know, your friends tell you it's like, man, you should have just had a couple of beers and chilled out. And it's like, no, 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 here, you're not supposed to be social. You're not one of like five friends that are doing this. It's like, this is your day. If you feel called to cry about your mother, that is exactly what you need to be doing. And those tears are like, let them pour, let right. them pour. And we want you to feel comfortable in that or hysterical laughter and everything in between. It's all welcomed and it's exactly what you should be doing. You know, you're not putting up the social game of like, oh, this is going to look weird. This is embarrassing. Right, so you're really preparing people for this. Yeah, this like you need to be able to let go as deeply as possible. Even with the thoughts of like uh, like the music, you're not playing DJ, the music program's already selected. Your job is to be a baby and to just go inward. And we're taking care of everything else. If there's a fire alarm, like it's happened a couple of times in the studies <laughs> out of hundreds of sessions, like, you know, you'll be, we'll take you outside. It'll just be a... You know, we don't get to see nature and outside, so we'll get to go outside and walk <laughs> around the campus, and that'll it'll be fine. Um, but other than that, like you're, and, and even there, we're gonna lead you around like a baby. You know, we're gonna go out with you. You know, so it's it's you're letting go of everything. You're not worried about your. You know, hey, someone's taking a psychedelic. They're at a concert. They do need to be somewhat concerned about. Oh, where's my wallet? Where's my purse? Um, am I being especially for women, obviously, am I going to be sexually assaulted if I'm like inebriated in public, you know, like you're not supposed to trust everyone. So you want them to feel like they're in, in an environment where they can let go of all that. And even something that's cool is at the level of if you're in the U.S., even at some, even if it's very unlikely, the idea of like, yeah, the cops could bust in because this is illegal. Like what if somehow they found out that like whatever it's like even nope, 
this is DEA, FDA, they've all checked off. This is totally, this is a controlled substance, but this is the legal use of a controlled substance. There's nothing illegal about this. So right. even at that level, I think of that as your tribe at large, the United States government, like your tribe has sanctioned this. Like there is so nothing imagine, wrong with this. I would imagine a lot of people listening to this want to know how do they get into a trial? How do they get a family member into a trial? Is it, are the ones ongoing? Is there a way to get in? The best thing to do is to look at, a, there's a website called clinicaltrials.gov. And that there are now so many psychedelic studies, thankfully. I mean, gosh, up until five years ago, I could have told you, you know, all the studies on the planet that were going <laughs> on, especially when I got into this in 2004, almost 20 years ago. You know, then there were like two or three studies on the planet at any point in time. But there's way too many for me to even be aware of. I mean, there's hundreds at this point, I believe. But get on clinicaltrials.gov. Um, that whether it's a government-sponsored study, like NIH-funded study or not, that that is the the repository in most institutional review boards, the ethics board at universities and other institutions that you need to get that type of approval that will require you to register in a place like that. And the FDA will, because you need FDA approval. So you can find all of the psychedelic studies, really most of them in the world. And it's not just limited to the U.S. Like you can, that's, that's the best repository of the ongoing psychedelic study. So look up for keywords like psilocybin, psychedelic, MDMA, and, and you can hopefully find something near you. But I do warn people you know, there's a far greater need than the bandwidth right, that for the sure. clinical trials. No, but no we're probably less than a year away from MDMA being approved as a treatment. And we haven't talked about ketamine, but ketamine is approved right now. And some people do and don't consider it a psychedelic. Do I do consider it you a do. psychedelic. Um, it, it's different. I mean, there, Have you there, seen the benefits to be similar to? Yeah, there's a huge overlap. And I think, and a lot of the clinics that are preparing for um, running MDMA and psilocybin sessions, when that approval comes along, they're starting with ketamine. Exactly, exactly. And then there's other things like there's the the state law in Oregon. I was going to ask you about Oregon. I have uh, that question and one other, uh, just uh, because of time constraints. But on Oregon, what do you think about that? I mean, I I saw the first. So in 2019, I think it was or 2020, they passed a law that um, it's legal under certain right. It, it could be. Um, like regulated in some way. And I guess the first clinic came out that's offering it. Do you feel like it was done correctly? Do you have any issues with it? The jury is still out. I mean, we'll see how it goes. I mean, some of the things I was concerned about at the beginning, and I had told the organizers that, you know, their intention was for it to not conflict with federal law. And, and, and you know, until, you know, psilocybin is taken out of the Controlled Substances Act, you know, you know, I, there's going to be some level of conflict. So hopefully there's, you know, a tolerance at the federal level, which I think is going to be there, but it's not guaranteed. So, you know, are we going to have the early days of medical cannabis and like after Prop 215 in California passed in 96, where, oh, if you're politically active, like you're, you know, your your dispensary or your clinic would be you know rated by the DEA, whereas if you kept your mouth shut, you know, and just did your thing, you know, you'd be fine. So you get the selective enforcement, which is kind of a threat to the First Amendment. And my, not kind of, it is a threat to the First Amendment. Either it should be legal or not, you know. Right. So you get this weird gray area where things might be in conflict with federal law. So I don't know 
the details of or what assurances they have from the feds that this is going to be, you know, I want to see the experiment unfold. I want to see things done safely. One of my concerns from the beginning was this was sort of sold in the ballot initiative as as therapeutic use. But if it's therapeutic use, you do need to have certain standards if you're treating disorders. Like so, that kind of, kind of conflicted with. They had something in in the uh, at least in their early. I'm not sure if it shifted um, proposed framework that said, well, there's no educational requirements as a nod to the indigenous cultures, where hey, you may not have a degree, but you might be from a society from a, a lineage right, that's, that's been doing this forever. Yeah, and so that gets complicated, and I understand where that comes from. And especially acknowledging that so many of these traditions of these, you know, things like mushrooms do come from hundreds of, if not thousands of years of indigenous cultural use. At the same time, if you're talking about, you know, treating PTSD, we know some things about treating PTSD, like how to do it and some things that will make it worse. And I sort of think like, well, if you're doing surgery, like all respect for all cultures, but on top of anything else, I want to make sure you've gone to an accredited medical school and have surgical residency. You know, it's like before you cut into me. <laughs> so if you treat, you know, so that's a bit of a concern. And so I, I think they've navigated that by it's technically not for therapeutic use now. And in it, Oregon. Right. And and so one of my concerns though is that are they really vetting people? Like we really screen people at the psychiatric and med and physical level. We give them a physical, um, test their heart, you know, and, and their their blood pressure and ex liver health, et cetera. Getting a blood sample, um, and we do a, a structured psychiatric interview, really delving into their, you know, which could take anywhere from an hour to several hours, depending on the length of their history, but. Is it going to boil down to a form like you've shown up, you've already spent a couple thousand dollars to even just get the, you know, or, you know, hundreds of dollars for the flight and you have, you've paid the, you know, and then you show up, you spend all this money and you've taken time off of work and everything. And then they hand you this form. And this is a hypothetical here, but I wouldn't be surprised if it unfolds. And it's like, oh, check all that, you know, if you have a family history of heart disease, blah, 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 blah. And you just check no on everything because like yeah, I don't want this thing to get canceled last right. minute. And, or even if it was done at the beginning where you haven't spent all the money, but you also realize, Oh, if I check no to these things, if I check I'm yes, this, I'm not going to get it. So, you know, like, you know, humans are humans. We, we tell little white lies sometimes and, and thinking, well, if there's any risk, it's to me. And so I'll fib on this. So I'm, I am a bit concerned, like what the standards are going to be, I hope that it's going to be done well. Like if someone's really dealing with like, right. you know, serious trauma, like, you know, you would need a clinical psychologist and a, um, and or a psychiatrist to be, you know, with training and helping with that disorder involved as, as an example. And I think for any of it, you need the appropriate, and I don't know where they've landed with this, but I think you need the appropriate physician involvement. You certainly don't need, it would be overkill to have a physician in every room. You would actually make this you too would, expensive. <laughs> exactly, it's already very expensive. It was thirty five hundred dollars. I the saw that. Experience, yeah, which is and it is expensive to get two trained professionals. It's a lot of hours. Prep. A lot of hours of time. Yeah, and then not, and that's not even counting preparation and integration, which is essentially right. a discussion the day after, and then depending on, you know, maybe even in days following that. So, um, you know, but. Like if there's like how far are you from med in case there is, there is a bit of a chance these like mushrooms are, 
pretty robustly medically safe, but there is a bit of concern. People, there have been some people that have died that are at the severe ends of heart disease. The type of people who going up flights of stairs or shoveling snow or frankly you know, having sex, these things send people to the ER every day, you know, who are in that very vulnerable position. If your doctor told you don't take the stairs at work, take the elevator because your ticker can't take it, you're at risk for anything that slightly elevates, you know, even modestly elevates your blood pressure and pulse like psilocybin. And so there have been, and they're very rare, one of the only, perhaps the only in the medical literature death from mushrooms has been a heart transplant patient, obviously in that high risk, you know, category. Um, So like how far, just in case something happens, how far are you from, you know, uh, and I don't know where they've landed with that from, you know, from an ER in case you need it. Or, I mean, I, I, I did my undergraduate in Oregon, in Eastern Oregon. So I know what it's like. It's beautiful, but you can be in places that are like, yeah, you're three hours from civilization. You're in, you know, God's country. You're just like natural beauty. But like, yeah, if something went wrong, you'd be. So I don't know where they've landed with things like that. Um, and was a physician involved with evaluating whether you qualify, whether I don't, again, I don't know where they've landed with that. But those are some of the things that. That you worry about. Yeah. And, and, and I'll also recognize there needs to be a balance because you can't. If you make or it, if you a, make it too out of reach, then people who need it, right? So maybe it's like you know, hey, you had to get a signature from your own physician. You have to get a physical yourself, and we need to see that you're not at a. That would be a reasonable compromise for for me. It's like um, that you're not at that severe level of heart disease, and and we've done plenty of people that are on beta blockers or controlled hypertension, and that seems to be totally fine, but. Yeah, so things like that, and and people that are showing the signs of, there is good suspicion that people that are prone to disorders like schizophrenia, that that they could destabilize from this. So have you probed for that in a serious way, not just have you ever been told you have schizophrenia? Um, So I want to see, I'm I'm not an expert where they currently stand with all of that, but those are the things that would be on my radar screen and... I hope it's a success yeah. because I'm and all for like we live in a, you know, a, a, a constitutional republic and, and federalism. It's like states can be experiments. It's like, hey, the rest of the country could look at this in a few years and say, we want to do that or we don't. And the feds can look at it and say, we want to do that or we don't, you know. Right. I hope and, it goes well because anecdotally with myself and many others, I've seen a lot of promise um, for this. So I want to thank you for joining. First of all, nothing we said is uh, medical or legal advice. Obviously, right. anyone who's Absolutely. Uh, researching this, go about it uh, in your own way with your own professionals. Uh, but I do want to thank you both for coming here today and for uh, the work you've done in this area. You're yeah. one of uh, the early ones. Thanks, so thank Ellie. You so much. I really appreciate what you do and having me. Yeah. Thank you. Looking forward to more. Yeah. <laughs>